Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 41, the second half of this account of Joseph's rise to the pinnacle of power, the right hand of Pharaoh himself, the king of all Egypt. No magician or soothsayer in all of Egypt spoke with the authority of Joseph. A mere 30 years old, he stood in the court of men twice his age and gave a clear interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams. He not only told Pharaoh there would be seven years of plenty coming, but there would follow seven years of terrible famine. He not only gave that interpretation, he then unsolicited, and quite dangerously when you think about it, gave a blueprint for surviving that coming famine. This is a prisoner rising to this place of interpretation and now advising the king of the known world about what he should do in the face of this prediction. The key to Joseph's confidence can be found in what he reminds Pharaoh after the ruler asked him for an interpretation. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Even Pharaoh stood amazed by Joseph's wisdom and his certainty about the will of his God. Pharaoh was sure that this was his man. This was Egypt's man to survive the famine. This was the savior of Egypt. And by extension, this was the savior of the world in his day. All the earth would come to Joseph. Here as I read now God's holy word, Genesis 41, starting at verse 37, down to verse 57, the end of the chapter. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Saphanath Paneah, and he gave him in marriage to Asnath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, 
Asnath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, each time we turn back to Genesis, we are struck with your careful orchestration of whatsoever comes to pass for your glory and for our good, the good of your people. Even this story that dates almost 4,000 years ago has direct relevance for us. Your hand upon Joseph and the work that you did through Joseph brought forth the Messiah, the seed of the woman long promised, our Savior. Further, our witness of these events as we look at your word refreshes our understanding of your providence and your watch care and your love. Guide us in the study of your word this morning through your Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. R.S. Candlish typifies this reading that I have just given by saying this, the whole thing is told so simply, the account so naturally given, the entire narrative so plain, so homely, so unostentatious, no mind or heart open to the fair impression of what is genuine and artless can fail to see in it and feel in it the stamp of truth. It is not gorgeous and fantastic fiction, but the most simple and unsophisticated telling of a true tale. It is no got-up fable, but a real, old-world, matter-of-fact story, having a lifelike air about it, not to be mistaken. To this point, Joseph has gone through a lot. Thirteen years, from the time he was 17 to the time we meet him again in this passage. He was sold violently just before manhood, sold violently by his own flesh and blood, betrayed by his very own brothers, stolen away from his family to foreigners, taken to a foreign land as a captive, as a prisoner, as a slave at the age of 17, robbed of 13 years of relationship with his baby brother Benjamin, taken from a father who treasured him, just as he was about ready to enter that phase of life where he would have been able to partner with his father in a way he had never done before, made a servant of a foreign power whose future, whose fate was in the hands of someone else all the time he was there. He was lied about. He was conspired when he was there, even though he was a faithful servant, accused by an immoral wife of an Egyptian nobleman, 
thrown in prison, spending years there as well. A crime that he didn't commit in his mid to late 20s. Miraculously supplied with an interpretation that should have got him out at age 28. The cupbearer, however, forgot Joseph. More struggle, more trial, more suffering. Two more years in prison before we come to this day. The day of all days where he reaches finally this pinnacle of God's placement of him. After his suffering had run its course, Joseph was ready for his pinnacle moment. You see, that's what we've been studying for these 13 years of Joseph's life. A course of suffering that God had him through. A course of patience growing that God had him on. God prepared Joseph for this pinnacle moment in chapter 41 and following. This pinnacle moment of God's promise-keeping, His grace, and His salvation pictured through and actualized through the person of Joseph. The time has finally come. Let's look together at this rise to power first that has reached its pinnacle. It's been happening. It's been ongoing. We can see that now. Now we can see it because of where he ascends to. But the whole of it was God raising Joseph along the way. Look at verse 37. Pharaoh likes the proposal that Joseph makes to call out a person to be an advisor, a prime minister, to oversee the gathering of food so people could survive this terrible coming famine. Pharaoh loves the plan. But Pharaoh notices that Joseph has something special. He's not just another wise man who's intelligent on paper. There's something more here. Verse 38, Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this? And here's the key, the difference. In whom is the Spirit of God? Yeah, we can find magicians. There are a dime a dozen. We can find soothsayers. We can find dream interpreters, wise men. But can we find one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh turns to Joseph, verse 39. Further evidence, this is God raising Joseph to power. It's not just Joseph's resume. It's something that's clear about the hand of God upon him. Pharaoh says to Joseph in verse 39, since God has shown you all this, do you see this? He sees that Joseph, God, has shown him all this. There is none so discerning and wise as you are. You are wise and discerning because your God has shown you this. This is God raising Joseph to power. This is what, it's not just a whim that makes Pharaoh do this. And you might guess it would have to be that. Now, in the case of Daniel and Mordecai later in the Old Testament, they already had positions where they proven themselves at some level and then became advisors. In this case, it's so clear that God has lifted up this young man of 30. Pharaoh sees God's hand upon him. And as a result, he says, verse 40, you shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne itself will I be greater than you. God had continued to elevate Joseph along the way, each step being preparation for the next step. He found favor in his father and was given great authority, even over his brothers as the youngest brother. He found the favor of Potiphar because God made it that way, and he was given great authority in Potiphar's house. He was given great favor by the keeper of the prison and thus given great authority in the prison. This is God raising Joseph each level. He was then given sovereignty over Pharaoh's household, his household affairs, sovereignty over Pharaoh's subjects. 
given sovereignty over the people of Egypt themselves, even sovereignty over Egypt's borders. If a foot would enter into Egypt, Joseph had to say it was okay. Look at verse 41. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. This would be a ring with a a stamp-like implement on top of it, probably the bust of Pharaoh himself that could be pressed into legal documents to prove it's from the authority of Pharaoh. And then he does something else. He had already taken off his prison clothes. Joseph came and prepared himself. Now he gives him new garments of fine linen of highest quality in all of Egypt, Egypt known for their linens. Then a gold chain is a gift for his answering those dreams to show he is Pharaoh's favored one. This new clothing signifies a complete acquittal of the guilty Joseph that was in the prison. If you thought about the theme of the clothes that Joseph wore, now he has a coat of many colors that everyone acknowledges. Now the original dream that he had starts to take some shape. Joseph now wears the visible signs of authority and kingship. Verse 43, and he made him ride in his second chariot. And so when people bowed down for Pharaoh, being in the second chariot, they're still bowed down when Joseph comes by. That's on purpose. Bow the knee. Thus he set him over the whole land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said, verse 44, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. He made him second in command, viceroy, prime minister, the vizier. He's the great steward now of the Pharaoh to exact this plan to save Egypt and the world. From slavery and imprisonment for 13 years, to second in charge of the world's most renowned kingdom. All of this favor came from God's special presence and God's gifting. He raised Joseph to this place, and Pharaoh even gave him a new name, Zaphnath paneah Now, the exact meaning of the name is unknown, scholars argue. Josephus, the great Jewish historian, says it means revealer of secrets, but other archaeologists have proven it's probably not that. It could be God speaks. It denotes that Pharaoh recognizes that Joseph speaks with the wisdom and the knowledge of his God. God also blessed Joseph with a family. He gave him in marriage to Asnath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land. Here we have Joseph marrying now lost his family completely. Now he's given to marriage to someone who's in royalty. Unless we be concerned that his faithfulness to God would waver, we'll see soon that it doesn't at all. The gifting that Joseph received personally and bestowed upon him, all of this was God's doing to raise him to this place. All authority is given by God. Everybody who has any authority in life, and everyone here has some level of it, that's authority given to you by God. It's not because of who you are, it's because of what God has ordained. And we should recognize when we have authority, who it comes from, who we are stewards of, how we should then act accordingly. Things can change very quickly, can't they? We've seen it in the life of Joseph. 
in the prison in the morning to the right hand of Pharaoh by night. Change was long for him in those 13 years, but it was quick for him too. Rises and falls happen super fast as God orchestrates events. For Egypt, from feast to famine rather rapidly. Don't count on earthly securities. Recognize all these things come from God, even the lifting of a person to this kind of power. It was through a course of suffering, though, we should not forget, where God prepared Joseph to be in this moment for this pinnacle moment of promise-keeping grace and salvation. Let's see the faithfulness that God works through Joseph, starting in verse 46, where he takes the stewardship of being the prime minister of Egypt, and he faithfully executes it. Verse 46, he was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And notice what he does as a faithful steward. He doesn't just take the promotion and sit back in his throne and start ordering people around. Oh, I'm the supervisor now, so I'll start sending everyone emails. Notice what he does in verse 46. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. He knew what it would take to exact this plan that he pitched to Pharaoh. It would take hands-on administration. And this is who Joseph was. He was out with the people, seen by the people, personally tending to the storage of the grain that had to happen for the saving of many lives. A faithful steward was Joseph. He goes out to the different cities of Egypt. He meets with the governing powers there. He tells them the situation, what the plan is, and how the taxes should be gathered by the grains brought into the storehouses. He goes to the next one and explains. I'm sure a few farmers are like, why? We can barely make it now. How can we do this? Joseph explains to them, but this is what's going to happen. This is what we'll need. And he goes to the various cities, and he's able to meet the people, see the people, explain to them what he's doing. And they, it gathers momentum, and they follow him because he's a, an effective, he's a, he's a people's prime minister. He's someone who recognizes what it will take to have this plan happen. He can't just rule from on high. He'll have to lead from, from the front. He'll have to say, follow me. This is what we have to do. A steward is an agent on behalf of another, and he was stewarding the plan that was agreed upon or formalized, made official by Pharaoh. He's a custodian of the plan, and he's acting it out. He's doing it. He's with, side by side with people. He's a superintendent over the household kingdom affairs, a guardian for humanity in his post, and he took it with deathly seriousness. Verse 46, he went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. This was not a vacation for him. His promotion to this position meant faithful stewardship. Joseph consistently showed himself to be faithful as a steward wherever he was placed, whether it was in the prison or the palace. He was loyal and he was truthful, and he's an example to us in this regard. He was a faithful steward for his father, even when it cost him greatly. He was a faithful steward of Potiphar, even when it cost him greatly there. A faithful steward of the prison keeper, even when it yielded no immediate apparent reward. Joseph was Joseph, wherever he was, reliant upon God for his wisdom, for his abilities, for his skills. He used his God-given skills and put them to work. He didn't just talk about it. He wasn't a showman who just spoke and didn't do like so many politicians are, the kind that brags about things they're not really doing. Verse 47, during the seven plentiful years 
the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, wisely and faithfully gathering and leading. He put the food in the cities. He knew it would need disbursement immediately when the need came. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. This combination of his administrative skill and God's providence grew his credibility as things unfolded as foreseen. Verse 49, Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sands of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. It was through a course of suffering that God prepared Joseph for this moment, for this pinnacle moment of promise-keeping grace and salvation. There are many applications we can make when we look at the example of Joseph and stewardship. I was thinking for young people, especially when you're living in your parents' household, you're given tasks to do. How you do with those tasks will go a long way to other tasks you'll gain. Uh, It's as simple as, yes, I'll take the garbage out, but I don't. What what expectation do you have for more responsibility? God grows us through these lesser things to become more things. Sometimes it keeps us that way for a long time. We are still to be faithful to that stewardship. That could be true in our jobs. I really like what I'm doing. But God calls you to be a faithful steward in that. And don't expect to have something else given to your responsibility when you're grumbling about the thing you have right before you. God gives you gifts and skills for your vocation, for your life, for your household. Use these gifts as a blessing to others as well. And this is what Joseph sees. Think long-term, not just the present very short-term. The very short-term is no doubt for something else he has for you, still coming, still yet to be revealed. Trust God's Word about foundational matters. Don't get sucked up into the immediate appearances and experience of things. Stick with the plan before things get emotion-driven. This is important here because things will get emotion-driven, fear-driven when people get hungry. He has to have this plan work itself out and be set up. It's not like the people who set up our social security. This has got to work. And so he's got to do what he's doing hands-on and get the people to buy in so they're ready for what's about to come. Such sustenance takes long-term plans, actions, and discipline. And here's the beauty of what unfolds. You'll see, Joseph, when the opportunity arises to give all the credit to God. Pharaoh has seen this already, but this will become more and more evident to the people watching what is unfolding. All credit to God. Look at verse 50. Before the year of the famine came, so the end of the seven years or so, two sons were born to Joseph. Asnath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. You'll notice that Joseph does not name them Egyptian names. Joseph called the names, Hebrew names. They are confessions of faith for Joseph, living monuments of his belief in God. Verse 51, Manasseh is the first son. You'll recognize the second son, Ephraim. You'll note that eventually these become two of the tribes of Israel. Manasseh, the first son. The reason he names him this is because it means God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. It sounds like such a harsh thing to say, but think for a moment. Put yourself in the place of Joseph. At 17, you're sold out like you are. You have the gnawing agony every day of thinking that your family sold you out for death, your own brothers. 
Your father, to your knowledge, has not come to seek you, has not found you. This is gnawing at him. Every moment that he has to think of something, when he's not busy with something else, what comes to his mind? The sense of what has happened to him and his family as he lives in this foreign place. The, the difficulty over the years, the baggage he's carrying. When he missed his father and missed his brother, especially Benjamin, who never got to grow up to meet his full brother, Benjamin, no doubt he would weep about the past. But now God has given him a son, his own family. God has blessed him to take away some of that distraction of missing his, his birth family so much. And he gives credit to God for this, for relieving his grief and sorrow. God has made me forget all my hardship, Manasseh. And now that that is relieved, God gives him a second son and he names him Ephraim. Why? For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. He's relieved me of that difficult baggage and burden of my past and the rejection from my family. He's made me forget that. I can move on. And he's given me fruitfulness where I am. God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Yes, I'm afflicted because of what I've been made to be, because of what's happened to me. But God, in this space, has still made me to bear fruit for him. Through all his experiences, he was productive. Productive as a slave, productive as a prisoner. Now productive as the viceroy of the kingdom of Egypt. And all credit is given to God. God has made me fruitful. His son's names will always bear witness to what he believed to be true. All credit to God. Remember, brothers and sisters, who releases you from your past, who has given you forgiveness. Remember how he has freed you from the paralysis that can come from what you may have done or have had done to you. Remember who is the root of your blessings, who's given you the new identity, who's clothed you with new clothes and given you a new name. Bear witness to the God of this faithfulness, even in the heart of an unbelieving place. It's through the course of suffering that Joseph is prepared for this pinnacle moment of promise-keeping grace and salvation. And notice the capturing statements about the far-reaching good that Joseph did by God's hand as he becomes a true force for good in the world. How many leaders do you know take that mantle and use it for the, a true force for good in the world? Joseph's an example of this for every leader who would ever look at how they should exercise their authority or their influence. Verse 53 the seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, as they always do at some point. And the seven years of famine began to come. Boy, those seven years are forgotten quickly, those first few days without enough food. This isn't just a fast, this is a famine. And it was just as Joseph had said, verse 54, there was famine in all lands, But in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. Egypt is situated in a place that's very fertile where it is, but there's desert all around it. So it depends on the rains falling in Africa that then go down the Nile River and flood the Nile for three months. If those rains don't come in Africa, not only does Egypt suffer, but all the lands around are suffering. That's what's unfolding here. And the line between anarchy and order is thin when hunger enters. Misery, despair come in. 
There are at least two times in Egyptian history where they had a famine so severe that people resorted to cannibalism. That's how bad it could get when a famine occurred. Verse 54, there was famine in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt, thanks to the plans of Joseph and the leadership of Joseph, there was bread. Verse 55, when all the land of Egypt was famished. So even Egypt, despite having outlets, now they're on ration. Yes, they had food, but it was ration because it had to be. There had to be a plan for seven years. Now they're feeling, feeling the things tighten up. And Egypt's recognizing, wow, this, this is affecting us. We can't eat as much. We have food, but we can't eat as much. So the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And look what Pharaoh says. Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. This reminds me a bit of that time, the first miracle of Jesus in the Gospels, the wedding at Cana. When the servants ran out of wine, Mary, Jesus' mother, said, Go to him, listen to him, do what he says. Here, Pharaoh says, go to Joseph. What he says to do, to you do. So when the famine had spread over all the land of Egypt, Joseph then opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. For the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. If it's severe in the land of Egypt, we can only imagine what it would be like for those who had not planned for it. That suffering, that suffering that God brought Joseph through prepared him to prepare Egypt for this moment. Verse 57, Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain. Everyone came to Joseph for salvation because the famine was severe over all the earth. When Moses says all the earth, he's speaking in terms of his universe of knowledge, the known world that he knows. Everything in his sphere of reference those nations, even as far north and west and south and east as you can imagine, um, they had to come from there even. That's how widespread this famine was. It's by God's practice, it seems, that He will bless some so that they could bless many. And the situation here was very dire for Egypt and those surrounding. A long famine meant sure death for thousands in that region. When the pain was most real, they appealed to, to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh directs them to the place where they could find salvation, Joseph. All the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain. A true force for good in the world is Joseph and his leadership because the hand of God is upon him. God blesses a select few in order to bless a great multitude at times. With great abilities and special placement, come huge responsibility to bless others. Joseph is a blessing to the world, not just Egypt or Israel. I love what Candlish says here. It is not for himself that he receives honor and reigns supreme. He acts for others. He benefits the world. He uses his power for the relieving of want and woe, for the dispensing of that bread by which man ordinarily lives. Worthily and fitly, does he represent him who being raised up on high, this is the Christ connection, worthily and fitly does he represent him who being raised up high receives gifts for men in whom it pleases the Father that all the fullness should dwell and out of whose fullness all may receive. Verse 55 of our passage, when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread 
And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. It's as Pink said, Joseph is now seen as dispensing bread to the perishing world. Do you see the imagery? He's dispensing bread to a world that's dying. When people were hungry, Pharaoh told them, Go to Joseph, and he will lead you to bread. But when Jesus comes, that greater Joseph, Jesus doesn't just direct them to where to find bread. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Jesus challenges the crowd. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread of life that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. That theme of bread is our sustenance is throughout the Old Testament, most clearly in this famine episode we see. But then with the manna that God provides the people of Israel when there's nowhere else for them to have food. And then Jesus calls himself that manna. The connection is so clear. The messianic uh, interplay all the way through to the point of Christ's coming. It was through a course of suffering that God prepared Joseph for this pinnacle moment where we finally come to after serving 13 years of his life. Pharaoh says to Joseph, of Joseph, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. When Jesus took three of his closest disciples to the Mount of Transfiguration, he was doing a final preparation for them to be apostles, to bring the message of the gospel to the world. In the wording echoes what we hear from Pharaoh. In Matthew 17, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. One time I was describing for someone, a, uh, a person in a church, a different church, uh, what our preaching schedule was like. And I said I was preaching through Genesis. And he said, oh, wow, how long? I said, it's been a while, a few years. A few years. I don't think I could do that. I would need to preach from the New Testament because I would want to be preaching about Jesus. I think we have seen the whole Bible is about Jesus. And there's no trouble finding Jesus in Genesis because he's there on every page. The same author that wrote the New Testament set the whole foundation for us in the old. When you look at application of Genesis, there's three levels you should think of. Number one, it's the story of God's keeping his promise to send the seed of the woman. It's the beginning of that story in history. The story of God's redemptive plan actualized, working itself out. That's number one. Number two, laden in by the author, God himself, are these consistent pictures of the Messiah, glimpses we can see of what the Messiah would come and do, how he would be greater than all these prefigurements, these types like Joseph. But there's also on the third level, the reality that these are people like you and I, who God has placed favor upon, working in their lives. We can see the mistakes they make and the things they do that are wise, and we can 
see those things applied throughout our life as well. The Scriptures are full, full of meaning for us according to God's appointment, and we see them on all those levels, and we have zero trouble seeing Jesus come through all of it because that's what the whole book is actually about. Yes, all the earth came to Joseph. May it be true that all the earth comes to Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we have traveled with Joseph to this pinnacle moment, and it has been quite a display of your providential handiwork. Bind to our hearts the truth of your sovereign yet personal action in the affairs of the world and indeed in the matters of our everyday living, especially in your people. Please encourage your people this day as we consider the great promise keeper that you are. Assure us of our salvation which has been accomplished by Christ. Joseph was a picture of the greater salvation that you would one day bring through Jesus. That day has come, and we are beneficiaries. Guide us now to love and to follow you all the days of our lives. I pray this through Christ. Amen.